Now today, as we proceed here, get my PowerPoint going, we're proceeding into a little bit further into Matthew chapter 3. We're going to learn today three things. Number one, we're going to learn that true repentance leads to bearing fruit. Bearing fruit in both our doctrine and deed. And we're going to learn that if we don't have true doctrines and deeds, it's evidence that you and I never truly repented. That's number one. Number two, we're going to be learning today that we as Christians should be content to warn people about the coming wrath rather than trying to place them under the wrath of God during the church age. We'll learn about that. We can learn something from John the Baptist today. Number three, we're going to be learning that salvation is never determined by genetics. God doesn't care about our genetic makeup one bit. What pleases God is that you and I are connected to the Son through faith alone. And through faith alone, you and I are going to bear fruit as true sons and daughters of Abraham. That's what we're going to be learning here today. Now, I want to begin in verses 5 through 6 where we see afresh this relationship between repentance and baptism. Notice what Matthew recorded. He said, Then Jerusalem was going out to him. Remember, the him here is John the Baptist. And all Judea and all the district around the Jordan. And they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River as they confessed their sins. Now, dear ones, I want you to note here that Matthew records that a lot of Jerusalem and those around the Judea area were going out to be baptized by John the Baptist at the Jordan. And some liberal scholars have claimed, well, how can that be because of the traveling distances? Well, I want you to realize that the Jordan River, where John the Baptist was baptizing, is only 20 miles from Jerusalem. And so this was a very doable trip, even on foot. I also want you to think about how popular John the Baptist's ministry was. So popular was his ministry that according to Flavius Josephus, as he was writing in his antiquities, the Herod Antipas, remember he's the Herod that ends up murdering John the Baptist, he was concerned that there would be a popular uprising. Why? Because there were so many that were following after John the Baptist. Now, another thing you want to be aware of is John the Baptist is preaching repentance and baptizing. There's a window in which his ministry corresponds and coincides at the same time with Jesus' ministry. That's between 29 and 30 AD, right in there. Now, we know that if you don't have to turn to this, but if you're a note taker, jot down John 135 through 36, because there, remember, John the Baptist sees Jesus walking and he says, Behold the Lamb of God. So we know from that passage that, yes, Jesus and John's baptism do coincide for a period of time, again, around 30 A.D. Now, I want you to notice here in verse 6, Matthew explains that the crowd was being baptized. Does everyone see that in the box? Now, this idea of baptism, I want you to think about how in the ancient Near East around the first century, there were different religions that had ritual washings. Judaism was one of them. And that's why you have what are called mikvahs, these baths around Jerusalem and around the precincts of the temple. And so Jews and God-fearers who were seeking the true living water that only the God of Israel could provide would take these ritual baths. But I want you to know that the term that we have in the box, baptized, which is baptizo, and also the noun baptisma, those are uniquely Christian terms. They are not used in Judaism. Okay, so this is distinctly a Christian term. Now, I'm going to talk more next week about the significance of baptism, but suffice it to say for now, there are three imageries and symbols 
that are connected to baptism that you and I have by faith alone in Christ. Let me reveal them and how they're related to baptism. Number one, the first symbol is that of regeneration by the Holy Spirit. Now, why would baptism be a symbol of regeneration, which is where the Holy Spirit enables you to believe? Well, the reason regeneration by the Spirit is symbolized in baptism is because in the Old Testament, God predicted he would pour out like water his Spirit. So that's the first symbol of baptism. Again, baptism doesn't regenerate. Don't make that mistake. It is a symbol of what the Spirit does. But he washes and makes us new people. The second thing it symbolizes, it's related, it's the washing away of our sins. Again, baptism doesn't do that. It is a symbol of that great truth that we have the moment we trusted in Jesus Christ. The third thing that it symbolizes is the death to the old world and being raised anew as you come up out of the waters. And again, all three of these symbols are present in Romans chapter 6 that Paul uh, talks about when he's talking about baptism. Now, I want you to note here, we'll talk again more about baptism, but those are the three symbols that are inherent within it. But I want you to note that Matthew here does not describe further the meaning or the significance of baptism. But what he does say, notice in verse 6 in the underline, he said they were being baptized as they confessed their sins. That's what he points out. The confession of sins is really an outward demonstration of the inward reality of a repentant heart. And I want you to think about the sorrow for sin is a component of having both saving faith and true repentance. Why? Because it is those who are concerned about sinning against the holy God of Israel that look for a savior. They're the ones who look for a remedy. And so you see, this shows us that John the Baptist ministry is doing precisely what it was supposed to do. That he was to prepare the hearts of the people, leading them to the sorrow for sin, so that he could introduce them to the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That is, he would introduce them to the remedy. So, John the Baptist is fulfilling his predicted ministry. Now, as we come to verse 7 here, we witness John the Baptist confronting the religious leaders of Israel and their need to flee from God's wrath. Notice what he says. Matthew 3, 7, he says, But when he, that's John the Baptist, saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Now, the first thing I want you to note here is that Matthew is the only gospel writer that links both the Pharisees and the Sadducees together. Now, from that, some scholars claim that, well, Matthew didn't understand the distinctions between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. That's not true. And we'll see that later on in Matthew, that he does know the differences between the two sects. Now, why does Matthew lump them together here? Because it is the Pharisees and the Sadducees that comprise the majority of the religious leadership in Israel. And it is this leadership that is apostate. And as we proceed through the book of Matthew... You see this idea of corporate solidarity where the people are responsible for their leaders and the leaders are responsible for their people. And so these are the wayward shepherds that just like in the past in Israel's history, lead the people astray. These are the ones that Jesus has the biggest fights and contention with. That's the idea. And so here, 
we see John the Baptist also has contention with them. Now, one thing I want to point out, a little Greek issue that I think needs to be explained. Notice in the underline where it says coming for baptism. That's the New American Standard Bible. And I wish I would have put a different version up, but it does give us an opportunity to explain something. I would prefer the rendering as the ESV has it or your Lexham English Bible, where the best rendering is literally they were coming to his baptism. The preposition epi here in Greek was better rendered directionally rather than for purpose. Now, why, why is that important? You say, Eric, who cares? I'm yawning at this point. I don't care about this grammar. Well, the reason it's important is because as the New American Standard Bible renders it, the Pharisees and Sadducees are coming for the purpose of baptism. They've bought into the message. That's not what's being taught. They are coming to the baptism. Oh, yes. Why? Because they want to spy out on John the Baptist and look into this new religious order that they deem to be a threat that's brewing by the Jordan. But they're not going for the purpose of baptism. That's the idea. Okay, so they're coming literally to his baptism. They're just coming to scope it out because they don't like what they've been hearing about this John the Baptist character. Now, notice what John the Baptist says to him. This is not exactly the seeker-sensitive approach. He calls them what? You brood of vipers. You brood of vipers. Can you imagine going out and on the street doing your evangelism and just beginning with brood of vipers? Now, when you talk about brood of vipers, the term brood literally in the Greek is the, it's an offspring of vipers. And of course, offspring would mean that they're characterized by. So literally, John the Baptist is calling them what? He's calling them a bunch of snakes. That's who these rascals are. Now, this announcement that they are snakes, therefore opposed to the will of God, is something that we'll see throughout the book of Matthew. And it will culminate in Matthew chapter 23, where Jesus says, you brood of vipers, he'll use the same term. He says, your temple is being left desolate. Why? Because they wouldn't believe. Do you remember back in Ezekiel, the glory of God left the temple? I'm thinking of Ezekiel 10. Why? Because of unbelief. And where did the glory of God depart in Ezekiel? It went up from the Mount of Olives. Jesus, the glory of God, abandons their temple again because of unbelief. Where does he ascend from? The Mount of Olives. Same pattern. Why? Because, again, Israel missed it. They didn't enter into a relationship with the Holy One of Israel by faith. So they're a brood of vipers. Now, notice in red, this is very instructive. John says, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? And of course, there's sarcasm there, isn't there? They're not fleeing from the wrath of God at all because in their self-delusion, they think they have nothing to flee from. They think that they are right with God. But in our own application, I think this is important because here we see that John the Baptist was content with warning them about what the wrath that's currently upon them? No, with the wrath that's to come, or literally the coming wrath. Brothers and sisters, in our application, I'll talk more about this, but we've had a propensity in evangelicalism really in the last 100 years to try to claim that any given cataclysmic event, whether it's a tornado outbreak, a hurricane, a terrorist attack, a pandemic, that that must be the wrath of God here and now because someone's a worse sinner than someone else. No, I think we should learn from John the Baptist that we as evangelicals must be content 
about warning people regarding the wrath to come. Don't try to put the wrath of the God on people here and now. Be content with the wrath that comes in the day of the Lord. Now, in verses 8 through 9, John addresses not just the religious leaders here, but also the people who are following in their same footsteps of unbelief. Matthew 3, 8 through 9, he says, Therefore, bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not suppose that you can say to yourselves, We have Abraham for our father. For I say to you that from these stones, God is able to raise up children to Abraham. Now, I want you to see here that John the Baptist is clarifying that one must bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Now, as I'm going to define later in our application, I believe bearing fruit is both our doctrine, what we believe, we're justified by faith alone, but it's also our deeds. And so fruit can be judged by any human being. In doctrine and deed, if you and I do not bear fruit in our lives, either in what we believe or what we do, remember, you always do based on what you really believe. If you and I do not bear fruit, it's evidence that we really never repented. And so this is a passage that you and I should put in our heart to say, am I bearing fruit in my life? Because if I'm not bearing fruit in both the doctrines and the deeds that Christ calls me to, maybe it's evidence that I really never believed. Now, I'll talk more about this in our application. You and I all fall short even as believers. But if the totality of our lives is bearing no fruit, again, it's evidence of no genuine repentance. Now, I want you to see here that John's rebuke continues in verse 9. Do you see where he says, And do not suppose that you can say to yourselves, We have Abraham for our father. Brothers and sisters, most Jews viewed their genetic relationship between Abraham and Isaac and Jacob as the means by which they were right with God. They were trusting in their genetics. Why? Well, because Jews, as Paul points out in Romans 9, they uniquely had the patriarchs, the promises, the law, and the covenants. And so, yes, they had a blessing. In fact, Paul says, what advantage is there in being a Jew? Remember in Romans 3, 1 through 2? And he says there's one in every way, for they had the very oracles of God. But it's these very scriptures that taught them that the only way you're ultimately connected to God is by faith alone. Abraham believed God and it was credited him as righteousness. If you're going to be a son or daughter of Abraham, it's to follow in his footsteps by faith, not being born in his lineage. Another way of saying it is God isn't pleased if you're born a natural descendant of Abraham, but he is pleased if you're born again. If you're born again, then you're like Abraham, whose righteousness was credited to him by God because he believed, Genesis 15, 6. Now, I want you to see here that John is belittling this belief in the genetic approach when he says, for I say to you that from these stones, God is able to raise up children to Abraham. If genetics were the issue, if being genetically connected to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob was important, John's saying he, God could do that with stones. He could raise stones up that were genetically connected. He could do that miraculously. But the issue isn't being, again, genetically connected to God, but connected by repentance and faith. Now, I think there may be an allusion here to Isaiah 51. The reason I think that is because the reference to Abraham and stones. Turn your Bibles, if you will, to Isaiah 51, 
the first two verses. Please turn your Bibles to Isaiah 51, 1 through 2. Isaiah 51, 1 through 2. Now, as you're turning there, this passage is about God giving encouragement to Israelite believers. And these were true believers. These are going to be brothers and sisters that you and I will find in the kingdom. And the reason he was encouraging them is because they had not yet experienced the promises that they have in the scriptures. They had to trust in the promises like Abraham. And so what you see in this passage is what connects them to Abraham is not the genetics, but their faith in the promises of God. Notice what he says, Isaiah 51.1. He says, listen to me, the me there is God. He says, you who pursue righteousness, who seek the Lord. So stop there for now. The pursuing of righteousness and the seeking of the Lord, that indicates that these are true believers. Notice he says, look to the rock from which you were hewn and to the quarry from which you were dug. Now stop there. What is the rock in this quarry that they were dug from? Well, it was Abraham and even Sarah in context. It's the patriarchs. In fact, I want you to notice that term that you see in the beginning where it says, look to the rock. Notice in verse 2, it also says, look to Abraham. Does everyone see that? That's synonymous. Looking to the rock here is synonymous with looking to Abraham. Now, interestingly enough, that term look that you see, that is the same term that is used by God when he brings Abraham outside in Genesis 15. Do you remember he brings him out? He says, look at the heavens and count the stars, so shall your seed be. In the very next verse, what does it say? It says, Abraham, this is Genesis 15, 6, believe God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Notice in verse 2 of Isaiah 51, it says, Look to Abraham your father and to Sarah who gave birth to you in pain when he was but one, that is before he ever became married to Sarah. He says, Then I blessed him and multiplied him. The idea is that Abraham received the promises And how did he receive them? Because of his genetics? No, it's by faith. If you're going to be in the footsteps of Abraham, it's not because your genetics matter. It's because you belong by faith alone. That's the point that both John the Baptist and later Jesus are going to be making in the book of Matthew. And brothers and sisters, our whole lives should be that which consists of bearing fruit for God bearing fruit in our doctrines, bearing fruit in our deeds, which will show that we're true sons and daughters of Abraham because we have faith in the Messiah. Now, as we get to verse 10, and I'll end it here, and I'll come to the next text next time, we get another metaphor of impending judgment as the reason why bearing fruit and repentance is necessary. Now John says this. He says, The axe is already laid at the root of the trees, Therefore, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Now, here's the question we have to ask. Why now is John using this image or metaphor of a tree being chopped down? What's that all about? Well, that's because oftentimes in the Old Testament, the prophets would use the imagery of God chopping down a tree as the image of judgment. We see this, for example, in Isaiah chapter 10 where the nations are likened to trees that God will one day fall and throw into the fire. 
Uh, When you get to Matthew chapter 7, Jesus talks about observing the fruit of the false teachers. And if they don't have good fruit, they're obviously false teachers or false prophets. Where will they be thrown? Into the lake of fire. Chopped down and thrown out. So brothers and sisters, notice here then the trees that we're looking at really are human beings here. And if they don't bear fruit, what are they going to be thrown into? The lake of fire. Fire is a designation for God's judgment. And it culminates according to Revelation chapter 20, verse 15, in all unbelievers being thrown into the lake of fire for an eternal time period. That's what's being referred to here. Now, John the Baptist then was what? He's preparing people that unless they truly repent and bear fruit in doctrine and deeds, they will not enter the kingdom, but they will be judged. That is his way of preparing people for the path, excuse me, preparing the path for the Messiah. That's what he was designed to do. Brothers and sisters, what we learn from John the Baptist today is that it doesn't matter what your genetics are. What matters, if you want to be a true son or daughter of Abraham, is that you would bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Okay, now I've got three points of applications and implications that I think flow from this text. Number one, We must, as Christians, learn to be content with warning people about the coming wrath. We learn that from John the Baptist today. He didn't say, hey, who warned you rascals to flee from the wrath that's currently being poured out? He said, no, the wrath to come. Why is that important? Because you're going to have false teachers like Jonathan Kahn, who will write books like The Harbinger, who say, well, that terrorist attack that you had in 2001, that's the wrath of God being poured out. What I'm going to show you is that speaking presumptuously. We don't have an authoritative apostle or prophet on the scene of history that can tell us that that is the wrath of God. And I'm going to show you Jesus had to caution his own disciples who falsely believed that various various cataclysmic events was the wrath of God. Number two, we must know that true repentance leads to what? To bearing fruit. Bearing fruit in both doctrine and deeds. And I'll show you some evidence that bearing fruit is both. Number three, we must know that faith, not genetics, makes one a child of God. That's what we'll finish up on. So let's begin with number one. Dear ones, over the last 20 years, I've seen many evangelical ministries and various teachers claim that different cataclysmic events are, or I should say, is the wrath of God here and now. Let me give you an example, because if I give a generality and I never provide any examples, people tend to glaze over. Bill Koenig. Bill Koenig, I love the man. I think he's a decent man. He wrote a book called Eye to Eye, Facing the Consequences of Dividing Israel. And his claim is that the reason the United States was suffering, for example, the Hurricane Katrina in 2005, was because of our mistreatment of Israel. Now, as I say that, I'll probably get some emails. Someone will say, hey, Eric, doesn't the Bible promise that God will judge the nations that mistreat Israel? Yes. Genesis 12, 3 Joel chapter 3, verse 2. But when does that judgment come upon those nations? Is it in the church age? Is it here and now? Or is it in the future day of the Lord? It's in the future day of the Lord. So why are we claiming that any given sickness, calamity, tornado outbreak, hurricane, is the wrath of God now? Now, do you see then what happens if people claim it's the wrath of God now? There are three big problems with that. Number one. Did God not promise in Romans 5, 9, 1 Thessalonians 5, 9, Revelation 3, 10, 
that we as believers are exempt from the wrath of God? So if we place God's wrath in mass during the church age, God's a liar. Because you and I, therefore, are under the wrath of God. Number two, do we have an authoritative apostle or prophet on the scene of history that can say, that's because of the wrath of God? No, we do not. Number three, shouldn't we follow and emulate John the Baptist and Jesus who warned, and you'll see the Apostle Paul, who warned not about the wrath currently being poured out, but the wrath to come. You and I should be content in warning people about that wrath. Now, let me show you that even Jesus' own disciples made mistakes. We'll see that here in John chapter 9 in the story about the blind man, the man born blind from birth. Notice here in John 9, 1 through 3, talking about Jesus, it says, As he passed by, he saw a blind man from birth. It says, And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he would be born blind? Jesus answered, It was neither that this man sinned nor his parents, but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. Now, brothers and sisters, I want you to notice the false binary choice that the disciples try to foist upon Christ. Notice in red, who sinned, either the man or the parents? It was either or in the eyes of the disciples. Either the man sinned or the parents. That's why this wrath came upon him in the form of him being born blind. But what does Jesus do? He cuts the Gordian knot and shows that there's actually a third option that they hadn't considered and that they didn't know. And that is, notice on the screen, it wasn't the sin of the man or the parents, but rather so that the works of God might be displayed in him. It was to glorify God. So you, here you have these mere mortals, these men telling Jesus, hey, it must be this man's sin or the, the parents' sin. Jesus, who is the prophet par excellence, God in the flesh, says, no, it was neither. You're mistaken. You're claiming God's wrath when in fact it was used to glorify God. That's the correction that he had to make with them. How many times do you have teachers today saying that event is the wrath of God? Really? How do you know it's not God being glorified? How do you know? Do you have an authoritative apostle or prophet on the scene? Now, this isn't the only time that Jesus had to correct his disciples. Turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 13, verses 1 through 4. We'll see that he had to do it again. On another occasion, Luke 13, 1 through 4. Please turn your Bibles there. Now, Luke 13, 1 through 4. Here again, you're going to see two different instances where some calamity came upon people. The false assumption, it was God's wrath because they were greater sinners. But Jesus is going to correct that false assumption. Luke 13, verses 1 through 4. Notice it says, now on that same occasion, there were some present who reported to him, that's to Jesus, about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. And Jesus said to them, do you suppose that these Galileans were greater sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered this fate? Notice verse 3, he says, I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. So stop there for just a moment. We'll read the next verse in a minute. So what happened is there was these pilgrims coming down from Galilee. They're coming to Jerusalem, more than likely 
for the Feast of Passover. And we're not told what they did, but they did something that really angered a Pontius Pilate. And in his wrath, what does he do as a human? Well, he does something that the Jews would consider great sacrilege. He mingled their blood, murdered them, and he takes their blood and mingles it with the sacrifices. That would be absolutely sacrilege to the Jew. So the assumption is they must have done something particularly heinous to undergo that kind of wrath. But what does Jesus say? He says, no, they weren't any worse sinners than anyone else. And unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. What Jesus' teaching there is very significant. What he's saying is, in essence, the death rate here in this life is one per person. And however you die, the issue is what happens to you after that in what the future day of the Lord. Notice verse 4. He has to say it again. He says, or do you suppose that these 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell, notice the cataclysmic event, and killed them were worse culprits than all the men who live in Jerusalem? What's the answer? No. They're not worse sinners. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is correcting this false assumption that every single cataclysmic event is the wrath of God. Now, I want to talk about who you and I should emulate And that is John the Baptist and the Apostle Paul. When you and I warn people about the wrath of God, I think we should learn from John the Baptist today who said this. Matthew 3, 7b, he said, Who warned you, Pharisees, Sadducees, the brood of vipers, right? Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Notice John the Baptist doesn't talk about the wrath that's currently being poured out, but the coming wrath. Now, we see... The Apostle Paul say the same thing here in Romans 2.5. Here he's speaking about the unregenerate. He says, but because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. Notice this idea of storing up wrath. This is very frightening. What it means is that every day the unregenerate live and they do not turn to Christ for the forgiveness of sins In thought, word, and deed, they are sinning before God. And they are storing up wrath that they will experience in the future day of the Lord. That's what this text is saying. But notice, Paul does not say the wrath that's currently being poured out. It's in the future day of wrath. Now, some might claim that, well, hey, Eric, are you saying then that God isn't going to judge wrath? Excuse me, judge in wrath the sinfulness of humans? No, I'm not saying that. In fact, we have in the Bible exemplary judgments that show us that one day God will judge sin. There are two exemplary judgments that are used by God in the Bible that show us that one day he will judge. The first is the flood. Jot this passage down, 2 Peter 3, 6. Remember, there was these false teachers who told Peter, there's no judgment coming. Jesus isn't coming again. There's no judgment. And Peter said they failed to notice that God has intervened in the past in a judgment in which he flooded the earth. 2 Peter 3, 6. But there's another exemplary judgment that's found in Jude 7. And that was the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. And those two judgments in history are like down payments where God says, hey, I'm going to do this again one day, and to show you that I'm good for it, here are these two judgments. 
God will intervene once again to judge sin. And all those who do not truly repent are merely storing up wrath for the day of wrath. And that day will certainly one day come. Now, if we're going to talk about that there's no wrath here and now in the church age, we have to deal with passages that seem to suggest otherwise. And I'm going to show you there's no contradiction in Scripture. They have to be properly understood. One of them is Romans 1.18. Romans 1.18, notice Paul says here, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Now, it is fair to say that this term where he says the wrath of God is revealed, that is revealed is a present passive form of apocalypto. So present tense means it's currently being revealed or being made manifest so that you can see it. So what about that, Eric? Isn't that the wrath of God currently being poured out? Well, it is in a sense, but what I would claim to you is the wrath that's being referred to here that's manifest is not one in which God is judging people for their sins, but he's handing them over so that they continue to sin. Now, what evidence would I supply for that? Well, the following verses. When you get to Romans 1.20, he says, For what may be known about God, namely his eternal power and his divine nature, have been clearly seen so that all are without excuse. And yet, did that mean that they all turned to God? No. They became idolaters. In fact, notice what it says in Romans 1.24. Therefore, God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity. What God is doing now in his form of wrath is he's handing sinners over to their natural desires for sin so that in Romans 2.5, they will store up wrath for the future day of wrath. So now the judgment that's come upon the world is God just lets people be who they are. You don't want to repent and bear fruit for my son? Then I'll hand you over to all of your sinful desires. That's the judgment that's being referred to. It's called reprobation, where God hands people over. Now, there's another text that I think we have to deal with, and that's in 1 Corinthians 11, 29 through 30, where here you have the Apostle Paul talking about the abuse of the Lord's Supper. Notice Paul says, regarding those who abuse the Lord's Supper, he says, for he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. Notice verse 30, he says, For this reason, many among you are weak and sick, and a number sleep. Now, I want you to notice in the underlined portion, in verse 29, he says, If he does not judge the body rightly, that is the condition that if you don't meet, he was saying in Corinth, you'll be judged. Now, what does it mean to judge the body rightly? Well, the body here in context is not the physical body of Christ. Some have wrongly concluded that. They think, well, this is about having the proper elements of food and wine appropriate for the Lord's Supper. No, that's not what it's about. Now, others have thought, well, this warning here is about not having sin in your life because if you have sin in your life, then you're not judging the body rightly. No, that's not what it's about either. The body here is not the physical body of Christ, but the corporate body of believers. Now, how can I so confidently say that? Because I'm just reading what the text says. 
In 1 Corinthians 11.33, Paul gives a therefore statement. He says, therefore, wait for one another. The one another, look on the screen, is the body of Christ. What was Paul upset about? Well, he was upset about the fact that you had wealthy Christians at Corinth that were having their own Lord's Supper, and they were separating themselves from other Christians who were poor. But these are Christians that are just as valuable as they are. Why? Because they were purchased by the blood of Christ. Every single person who's purchased by the blood of Christ has the same value. And so the point is that these wealthy Christians, they're reclining in the triclinium, having their own supper, while the poor Christians were separated in the atrium, will have nothing to do with these lesser people. And Paul is saying, hey, whatever supper you're having, this isn't the Lord's. And therefore, because they were abusing fellow believers in that way, what happened? Notice verse 30 says, for this reason, many among you are weak and sick and a number sleep means they died. Now, lest you think this is the wrath of God, two verses later, Paul says that this judgment is discipline from the Lord so that we as believers will not fall under the condemnation of the world. This is not the wrath of God. You know that the condemnation of the world is the wrath of God in the future day of the Lord. So this is a discipline, but yes, it's severe. People who abuse the Lord's Supper by abusing other Christians in this context had even died. Here's the question. Who is the Apostle Paul? Well, he is a personal spokesman for Jesus Christ. The question is, do we have any apostles on the scene of history that can say any given sickness, any given calamity is the wrath of God? No. The Apostle Paul was personally and objectively called by Jesus Christ can anyone claim that today? No. 1 Corinthians 9.1, the Apostle Paul saw the resurrected Jesus Christ. Can anyone claim that today? Nope. Number three, the Apostle Paul was personally instructed by Jesus Christ for three years. Can anyone claim that today? Nope. Number four, the Apostle Paul did the same miraculous deed so that even if his shadow fell upon someone, they were raised. Can anyone claim that today? No. The apostles were unique, and we don't have those today. What does this all mean? Brothers and sisters, let us be content, as John the Baptist was today, about warning people to flee from the wrath to come. Because if you and I, as evangelicals, start claiming that any given calamity, sickness, illness, tornado outbreak, hurricane, is the wrath of God now, it starts to smack to the world of us wanting bad things to happen to them. But instead, we should be those who wrap our arms around people and say, hey, I'm just another beggar who's found the bread of life. Let me pray for you. Let me share the way that you can flee from the wrath to come through faith in Christ. Let us be those kinds of people rather than those who say that the man born blind or whatever, well, it's because either their sin or the sins of their parents. All right, now, let's go on to our second point, and that is true repentance leads to bearing fruit. That's what we saw today in Matthew chapter 3, verse 8. Now, bearing fruit, I believe, should be defined this way. Bearing fruit means that you and I would produce beliefs in actions in accordance with Jesus' moral will as defined under the new covenant. 
Let me say that again. Bearing fruit has to do with you and I producing beliefs and actions that are in accordance with Jesus Christ's moral will as defined by the terms of the new covenant. What you and I are going to find out as we unpack all of the data, the doctrines and deeds that we're talking about is the fruit that Jesus was referring to. For example, in Matthew chapter 7, verse 16, Jesus here is talking about judging false prophets. And he talks about them in verse 16. He says, you will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? And the obvious answer is no. So what does he mean that you'll judge them by their fruits? Again, I'm claiming that that's both the doctrines and the deeds. And here, in Matthew 7, 16, the doctrines are the most important thing. Because one verse earlier, it's very clear that Jesus is talking about false prophets. What do false prophets do? They give false doctrine. But I'm going to show you in other places, it's more of the deeds that are emphasized with bad fruit. For example, I think that that's evident here in Jude 12. Remember, there's only one chapter in Jude. So Jude 1, 12. Jude says this about the false teachers in the congregation. He says, these are the men who are hidden reefs in your love feast. By the way, love feast, I think, is the Lord's Supper. When they feast with you without fear, caring for themselves, clouds without water, carried along by winds, autumn trees without fruit, doubly dead, uprooted. What were these false teachers doing that made them seem as if they had no fruit in their lives? And they, and they didn't. That's a true assessment. Well, they were reviling angelic majesties. They were telling the angels what to do, usurping God's authority over his divine counsel. And they did that because of their false beliefs. You see, their doctrine led to their wicked deeds. And that's why fruit is always both our doctrine and our deeds. I know as I say that, some will say, hey, aren't we saved by faith alone? Yes. But our faith is never apart and always should lead to righteous deeds. By the way, we see this in Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. The first two verses, Ephesians 2, 8 through 9, it says, for by grace you've been saved through faith. That not of yourselves, gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Ephesians 2, 8 through 9, we're saved by faith alone, and even that is a gift of God. But in the very next verse, in Ephesians 2, 10, Paul says, for we believers are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them that we should live them out. Ephesians 2, 8 through 9, saved by faith alone, there's your doctrine. Ephesians 2, 10, it's got to lead to deeds. Brothers and sisters, you and I can't know the motives of someone's heart. Only God knows that. But we can judge both doctrine and deed. And what John the Baptist was saying is if you and I don't bear fruit in our lives in both doctrine and deed, it's evidence that we really never repented that we really aren't true sons and daughters of Abraham, no matter what our genetics are. It's through true repentance and faith in the Messiah that you'll be given the Spirit, and by his power and grace, you will bear fruit. Okay, now, that leads me to my final point, and that is faith saves, not genetics. Dear ones, the Jews boasted in being sons and daughters of Abraham genetically, 
and therefore they were right with God. Today, as we look out at our culture, there is a lot of Marxist movements like BLM, Antifa, etc., who are claiming that genetics is the most important thing regarding a human being, even skin color. The Bible would say that that is antithetical to the doctrines of Christ. The least important thing about you is your genetics. And what's interesting is when you start looking at genetics, you realize in the Bible that your genetics or your skin color, it doesn't please God one bit. What's the only thing that pleases God? His son. We're going to see that next time we're in Matthew, where Jesus baptized. And as he comes out of the water, remember, there's a voice from heaven. The heavenly father says, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. And if you're not connected to Jesus Christ by faith, you're not pleasing to him. And it doesn't matter what your skin color is. It doesn't matter your genetics. You may be impressed with that. Some Marxist professor at a university may be impressed, but the Holy One of Israel isn't. Now, the Apostle Paul teaches this very thing in Romans 2, 28 through 29, where he says this. Notice in red, he says, free is not a Jew who is one outwardly. Stop there. Can Paul be any clearer that it doesn't matter your genetic makeup? It doesn't matter you're a Jew outwardly. With that, if you're a Jew outwardly, that'll get you a cup of coffee. Maybe at some shop. But it's not going to do anything to impress the Holy One of Israel. What does matter? Notice, Notice he goes on to say what doesn't matter. He says, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. Stop there. That was a ritual that was commanded by God, but it's no longer pleasing. Because it was designed to to go somewhere. Notice what does matter. Verse 29. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that which is of the heart by the Spirit, that's the Holy Spirit, not by the letter, and his praise is not from men, but from God. What matters is the circumcision of the heart. The circumcision of the heart is where God takes a dead heart and he changes it to to live so that someone trusts upon the Son. And once you trust upon the Son, the one in him that God was pleased, then you become a true son and daughter of Abraham. Brothers and sisters, you and I have a message to give to the world. We're uniquely, I think, appointed for this time to reach out to a dying generation that says genetics and race and all of this, all of that matters. Well, not according to the Bible. None of that matters. What impresses God is not our genetics, not our racial makeup, but his son. And the only people that will be pleasing to God on that day of judgment, when he does pour out his wrath, are those who have fled through repentance and faith in born fruit. Today, If you're listening to me here or you're listening online, if you've never turned to the Lord Jesus Christ, today is the day to repent and trust in him for the forgiveness of sins so that you would be clothed in the righteousness of Christ and that you would bear fruit as a true son and daughter of Abraham. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you that salvation isn't by our works or anything we do, by anything that we are, but rather it's faith alone in Christ alone, who was pleasing in your sight. We thank you, Heavenly Father, for these truths that even came from John the Baptist. And we pray, Lord, in the weeks and months ahead that we would be those who are content 
about warning people in love about the future wrath, not claiming that their sin results in calamity here and now, but that we would be compassionate, that we would be those who have the gospel upon our lips, that you'd give us boldness, Lord, an opportunity. We pray also that you'd regenerate hearts before us so that when we do preach your gospel, you would circumcise hearts, that you would bring many people to faith in your son so that they also would bear fruit. I pray for my brothers and sisters here, if there's any sin in their lives, Lord, that they would turn from that that they'd realize that they're called to bear fruit in both their doctrine but also their deed. We pray, Heavenly Father, you'd help us not just to be hearers of your word, but doers as well, who are true sons and daughters of Abraham. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.